Thank you, Bill. And as uh, Bill was sharing, obviously there was a ton of things to uh, think about and process. And if you got questions about any of those things, just on that response card, just put Life Group or Women's Event, Healing Choices, whatever, and we'll uh, get in touch with you. Uh, in relationship to my Tuesday group, and I, I believe in Life Group so much, I'm in three of them. So I just want to encourage you just to get in one. But the Tuesday, Tuesday night one, because of what's happening in our home, it's going to be in the chapel at 7 p.m. So just to my left, your right, uh, come at 7, and we'll, uh, we'd love to have you. Uh, well, we're excited about what God is doing as we begin the fall series of ministries, and also it's getting back to our series in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, for about five or six weeks, we stopped that during the summer, and uh, now we're getting back to it. And it's a kind of a good place to kind of stop because we're right in the middle. I know if you look at the number of chapters in the Gospel of Luke, you find out we're not right in the middle in terms of chapters, but we're really right in the middle in terms of basically Jesus doing his ministry. And so we're going to be seeing that this morning. And really, I would say today's message, and I, I shared an email blast this week, this is, this is really foundational. If you're here and say, well, I missed all the other chapters in the Gospel of Luke, it's, it's okay because we're really, we're really dealing with the center of his message this morning. And really, if you've got questions about Christianity, or even if you are struggling in your own faith, really trying to discover, do you really have true faith, we're going to try to talk about that this morning. And Hopefully, if I don't answer all the questions, I'm raising questions this morning. And, and a church ought to be a place where you can ask questions, and you can struggle, and you can share your doubts and the things that, that you don't agree with. This is a place to, to be at when you're wondering about God, and is there any way we can know the truth about God? And so uh, this whole series is knowing the truth, knowing the truth about Jesus. And hopefully, uh, you can journey with us as we try to do that. And so before we do that, uh, let's look in, in prayer one more time and ask God to take the time that we have and, and really open up our minds to what he has to say to us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you that you want us to know truth. And you have said in so many different ways that when um, we know the truth, it, it sets us free. It, it, it allows us to encounter Jesus in a personal way. And, and Father, I pray as we look at this message, which uh, Jesus said powerfully to those who are listening to him that we might, we might listen in and see how it should impact our lives. And we praise in Christ's name. Amen. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke. If uh, you're not that familiar with the Bible, there should be a Bible somewhere around you. And if you take the Bible and open it up in the middle, it's the book of Psalms. And if you hang a right a little bit, you'll uh, find the New Testament. And then there's four Gospels, which are four stories about Jesus. Uh, and it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and we are at the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to be looking at a, a fairly short section of Scripture, but filled with so many things for us to think about and, and wrestle with. And I've entitled the message, The Truth About the Who and the What. And really, this is so important. In fact, uh, this is really going to be on the test, uh, not a test I'm going to give. It's really the midterm, but it... If, if you remember uh, taking classes where they had a midterm and a final, and if you didn't do very well in the midterm, you might as well forget about the final. And, and Jesus didn't say this is the last time you can take the test, and this morning is not the last time you can take this test, but you don't know how long you have before you only can take the test. And, and Jesus hits his listeners strongly. And, and I want to say very in the very beginning, he doesn't mix words here. He, he doesn't make it... Uh, um, mysterious, or I remember learning a word a number of years ago, esoteric, which is only for the enlightened few. Uh, and I, I just wanted to 
congratulate all of you that you somehow survived yesterday. I don't know if you're familiar with um, Christian insanity, but uh, you know a, a man named David Mean. I think he's out of Australia. He decided that he was predicting when the world was kind of kind of come to the end, and it was yesterday. And somehow we all made it, right? And if it, if it wasn't going to end on Saturday, it was going to be the beginning of the end because this planet, which he among other ways to describe it, called a planet X, is on a collision course, and the preceding ways to look at it, which would be Hurricane Harvey, as well as the, uh, the big solar eclipse we had, uh, that it was just the, the beginnings of the, the end, and we were going to have these huge tsunamis, which we are experiencing, and these, these earthquakes that are going to destroy uh, our, our planet, and you had better be prepared. Now, I don't mind him predicting that, but what just maddens me is that, enrages me, is that he said that's because of what the Bible has said. And I'm thinking, man, I didn't, I don't remember anything about planet X in here and, you know, coming down and colliding with our planet. Well, where did he get that? Well, he tries to understand the Bible in a, in a kind of a mysterious way. He's what's called a numerologist. And a numerologist, among other things, look at the numbers in the Bible and, and try to figure out this, this kind of hidden mystery map of when things are going to happen, how they're going to happen. And all I can say to you, if you ever hear anybody try to teach the Bible with numbers, just run as far away from them as possible. And there's actually some people that I really admire and do very well in teaching a lot of portions of the Bible, but they're kind of fascinated with numbers in the Bible. Can I just say this? Of course, what are you going to do? Say no? Okay. Is that... Is that when you read numbers in the Bible, just take them as numbers, just as numbers. Uh, th- there are certain numbers in the Bible that have some kind of a, a pattern that, that is kind of interesting, but you don't have to have any symbolic meaning of any number in the Bible to understand the message of the Bible. When the Bible says one, it means, when it says three, it means, when it, means se- when it says seven, it means, and all those, they're, they're just numbers, the Bible is written so that we can understand it. And so don't try to figure out some secret code to get to the text and the meaning of the text. And so often, uh, people make the Bible harder to understand than it really is. Now, there are times where we get stubborn and we don't want to hear the message. And that's a whole nother message. And Jesus, after he's been teaching for half of his ministry life, which is basically three years, he comes to this midpoint. And geographically, the point we're going to get, he's going to talk about the who and the what. He's at this place called Caesarea Philippi. And in Caesarea Philippi, you can look up in a Bible dictionary or Google it or whatever whatever you want. And it's about 25 miles out of Galilee. And it's a place of worship. But primarily, it's a place of pagan worship. They had the pan god was half man and half goat. And, you know, they had all these mysterious ways of trying to figure out who God is. And so they, they, they made man in some kind of an image that they could somehow identify with. And if you've been with our series in the book of Exodus, even God's people who knew the true God wanted to worship him in a false way. And, and they threw some metal, gold precious metal into a fire and out came this, this molten calf. And, and the Bible is very clear that that if you're going to know God, you better know the true God. And if you know the true God, you better, know, you better worship God and follow God in the true way. And so Jesus has been with his disciples and with the crowds. And he's now come to that point and says, okay, I wonder if they're getting it. Now, he knew whether they got it or not. But he, he wanted to know whether the other people knew whether they were getting it or not. And so he begins to ask some questions. And basically the questions, and it was kind of a, the questions of, 
going on on the street and, you know, having an interview with people, you know, walking by, whatever it might be, and say, what do you think of this? What do you think about that? And, and so he begins to ask them, the disciples, about what people thought about him. And we're going to look at this morning with the two questions, and this is critical. And we're not simply, and let me just say this, you can have the right answers in your mind, but if it's not really in your heart, it doesn't mean anything. But he asks them, do you know who I am, and do you know what I am going to do, and do you know what I'm going to require of you? Now, if there is going to be a spiritual test, I guess I would want those questions answered rightly. Would you agree? I think it's pretty important that I know who Jesus is, what he came to do, and what he's requiring of me. And so, so let's look at it this morning. Crucial questions that are going to be on the test. It was a test that Jesus gave. It was a verbal test. It was an oral test. It wasn't a written test for them, but, but here we go. Luke chapter 9, beginning at verse 18. And I could spend a lot of time on introduction here. We're, we're, I already told you that we're, we're halfway through. And, and if you remember, I, I know you never forget anything I say up here, right? Nod your head like, and that's your goal. Okay, if you look back a number of weeks, we, we had the miracle, which is the only miracle recorded in all four of the Gospels, which is the feeding of the... 5,000, I'm sure you got, I'm glad you got that right, okay? But as you think about the feeding of the 5,000, which really demonstrated powerfully who Jesus is, and they were kind of shocked by it, we have a gap between Luke chapter 9, verse 17, and Luke chapter 9, verse 18. And if you look at the rest of the Gospels, you, you see that Jesus did a few other things that were pretty significant, but, but Luke said, hey, you, you've got it, now we're going to get to the point where he goes to Caesarea Philippi and, and asks the question. But he skipped a few important things. Yeah, some, of the, some of the fun miracles of Jesus. Jesus walking on the water. You have that recorded in the Gospel of Mark. And you had Jesus feeding another group of people, feeding the 4,000. You have Jesus preaching some powerful messages of, uh, of being the bread of life. You have that. That's recorded in the Gospel of John. And you have him doing some miraculous things with people who, were, who could not speak and could not see. He had some ma- major miracles. Jesus had the power of demons, disease, and death. And, and after all that, you would think... Uh, People are probably forming some opinions about this man named Jesus. This is not a person you kind of just, <laughs> he's not that important to think about. I mean, look at what he has been doing. And, and, and we arrive here as, as Luke records the conversation that Jesus has with disciples. And let's pick it up at verse 18. And it, the test, happened that while he was praying alone, Jesus prayed before he gave the test. And that would be great if teachers didn't that, wouldn't it? I, I want to make sure I give a good test. Uh, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, Who do the people say that I am? So initially, and there's basically two questions related to the who about Jesus. The first one is, is not about you, it's about others. What do other people think? What does the crowd think? And as he was giving this message, it, it was an object lesson because there were people worshiping. There were people doing all kinds of religious things, and, and, and they were kind of picking and choosing. And so he says, Who do, who do the people say that I am? And they respond this way. They answer and said, well, John the Baptist and others say Elijah, but others that one of the prophets of old has, has risen again. So here's the answer of, of some people related to Jesus. They, they think that he might be John the Baptist and they think he might be Elijah or someone else that was pretty prominent in the Old Testament and has come back to life. Now, what does that say to us? Well, you, you look at John the Baptist and if you want to say anything about John the Baptist, John the Baptist was a, a rather radical individual, wasn't he? I mean, he, he dressed wildly, he ate wildly, and um, he had a pretty powerful message, didn't he? 
And basically, you sum up everything that, that John said, and it was all about repent. Why? Because there's someone coming that's going to point out your sins, and you better be prepared for that. And for someone to preach that powerfully, you had to be a person that was pretty powerful in, in his, related to his own sin. And he would, he, you could say, among all other things, that John the Baptist was a holy man, wasn't he? I mean, he, he, he preached it, and he lived it. And he wanted everybody to live, to live it. Not only did he want everybody to live it, he was, he was willing to confront anybody about their sin. Even the most powerful people in the nation, like Herod, and threw him in prison, and he lost his head because of it. He was a holy man. And, and they looked at Jesus and said, well, the one thing we say about Jesus, he, 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 is, he is a holy man. I mean, as he's preaching against sin, we, we can't point fingers back and say, well, you big hypocrite, I saw you do this and saw you do that. And well, you, you don't practice what you preach. They, they, they knew that, that Jesus was holy. So, so much holy that, well, well maybe, maybe he's John the Baptist come back the, from the dead. And, and so they were just, they were just, they were seeing him as a type that he was, he was a holy man. And many people look at Jesus that way today. You know, he's a, he's a great moral example. He's a great moral teacher, and we ought to follow him. And, and then they said Elijah. And you look back in the Old Testament about Elijah, among other things, Elijah was a man who did things that no one else had ever done before. Remember the whole story of the prophets of Baal, and, and they're putting on the altar, and, they, and he, he challenged them to, to light the, the, the fire and the match and get it all consumed, and they couldn't do it. And he, he trash-talks them, and then later on he just, with a prayer, that after water has been spilled over the whole altar and it's consumed. And Elijah did miracle after miracle after miracle. And you couldn't be around Jesus at, for any length of time or be an earshot of the things he had done. And you had to recognize that he could do the miraculous. Now, we look back and we think, well, yeah, but we weren't there. Could he have really done those miracles? But that was not the issue for them. They could not deny what they could see and hear. Jesus did things no one else could do. But, but Jesus wasn't satisfied for people to just think that he was a holy man or a person who could do unique things. Because that's, that's not essentially who he is. Because God can empower people to be holy. And he can empower people to do miracles. And he's done it in the past. But Jesus was unique with all those. Because even though John the Baptist did not sin very much, Jesus didn't sin at all. And even though some miracle people can do some miracles, Jesus could do any miracle. In fact, he wouldn't describe that. No one has done the things that Jesus has done in the past or in the present. But the people had opinions about Jesus. But every opinion they had about Jesus wasn't going to affect how they lived. If somebody else is holy, does that mean you have to be holy? You can make a choice, right? If someone can do the miraculous, does that change how you live? It doesn't change at all. So, so he asked them. He, now he wants to go from opinions to convictions, and he says... Uh, oh, by the way, uh, who do you say that I am? Verse 20. And, and Peter answers and said, the Christ of God. Now, if you want to listen to the, or, and read the, the longer version of this, you can go to Matthew chapter 16. He said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, whenever we hear the Christ of God, which is a Greek way of saying the Messiah of God, or we hear the Son of God, or the We'll see a little bit later, the son of man. We're thinking, well, okay, does that mean he's somewhat little or below who really God is? No, that's, that's, that's the farthest from what a Jewish mind would understand that 
phrase to be. In fact, so much so that, that, that Jesus said to Peter, you know, the reason you were able to answer that question is not because you're the smartest guy around here. The only reason you understood this is because God himself revealed this to you. Well, what does it mean that Jesus is the Christ of God? Well, it means, among other things, he, he is the promised one. The word Christ or Messiah means the anointed one. This is the one who had been foretold from the very beginning who was to come, even from Genesis chapter 3. When the whole problem started. Now, he, he, he is the son of God. And, and for a Jewish mind, when a person is a son, it's a, it's a Greek word, wehos, which, which has the idea he is of equal value to the person it's connected to. It's like, you know, I, I, I'm, the, I'm, the, I'm the son of Art Johnson, which means I am, I am in essence the same as he was. I, I come from his lineage and I am at, at equal value. But even more powerfully... And it is put in, it's put in here wrong, where the next one says, Son of God, it really should be Son of Man. And I want, I want you to understand, when Jesus made reference to himself, he made reference to himself in ways that the people in, the old, in, in, the, in his time knew exactly what he was saying. The, the phrase Son of Man, and that's the, thir- the third one there, I want you to make sure you change it in your notes, is that if you, if you were to turn to Daniel chapter 7, let me, let me uh, just read what the Son of Man is. It's not saying he is somewhat like us. The Son of Man in the Old Testament was a description of the one who was to come. The Son of Man presented, I kept looking in the night visions, this is Daniel recording this, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. So, so he's looking up in the heavens. This is the one coming down from above. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory and a kingdom that all peoples nations and men of every language might serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed jesus made reference to himself as the son of man 80 times in the gospels he said i i i'm i am the one in which the kingdom will be mine and i will rule forever i am the the one who will be over all it will never be destroyed it's an everlasting kingdom and if you have want another picture of what what it means for jesus to be the son of god or the christ of god you know even just go to the book of revelation as john makes reference to the one he sees as the one who is to come the, the the same description of the son of man in in revelation chapter one And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, which he has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like... The sun shining in strength. When Jesus made re- statement that he was the son of God, he was equal to the one who is God because he is God. When he is the Christ of God, the Messiah of God, he is the promised one who has come to take away our sins. When he is the son of man, he's the one who is coming and his kingdom will rule forever. C.S. Lewis said this, and in your Bible study this week, we'll look at references where, where Jesus said, 
uh, even talking to his own disciples, like in John chapter 14, and, and they were wondering who he was, and, they, and, and he said, look, if you've seen me, you've seen who? God the Father. In John chapter 5, when he, when he did all these things and did the miracles, they said they picked up stones to kill him. Why? Because he was, as a man, as they saw him was, was making himself out to be equal with God. So as we think about what's going to be on the test, the test is, who is Jesus to you? Is he simply a, a holy man, a miracle worker, a religious leader, someone that people admire, an historical figure that's significant, that more words have been written about him than any other man in all of history, more songs have been written about him than any other man in history? You know, he's significant. Or is he truly God become flesh? For the vast majority of the people, they were looking for someone to relieve them of their problems. They were looking for someone who would somehow overrule Rome, and, and now they would be in power where they're now under someone's power. They were looking for more free lunches. He, he had just fed the 5,000, and after that he fed the 4,000, and they were, all, they were all excited about that. I mean, we got, we got free lunches forever. But they didn't realize that he came to be Lord in their lives. To not only have a kingdom that he would rule in terms of land and property or as we think of a kingdom, he came to rule in the lives of men and women and young people and boys and girls. He's the ruler. He's God Almighty. This is, this is what we have to wrestle with. C.S. Lewis has said this. I am, I am writing to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. In that account of Jesus calling himself the bread of life and then giving the feed and feeding the multitude, and realizing what's going on in their heart, he said, look, you need to understand, I, I, I'm not just like in the Old Testament where manna came down from heaven. You need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And when Jesus said that, everyone left other than his, his 12. They all left. Because they saw him as a, as a one providing just for their own needs at the moment. You, you, can't some, you can't call him a moral teacher when he says things like that unless he has the right to say them. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend for that to happen. Who is Jesus? Is he someone we just come on a Sunday to, to do religious things about? Or do we see him as Lord and God? Ruler and leader of my life every day of my life. That's who is Jesus. 
What is Jesus to do? And this is what tripped them up. At, at this point, the disciples, they knew who Jesus was and is. He's, he's God become man. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. They didn't have a problem with his position or his personhood, but they did have a little problem with his plan. And again, there's a section in Matthew that goes on a little bit further, but in Luke chapter 8, he gives us the Reader's Digest version of it, and, and he says this to them, that shocks them, absolutely shocks them to the point where in the, in the Matthew account, Peter starts to argue with Jesus. You know what the problem with arguing with Jesus is? You're never going to win the argument, you know? You're never going to win that argument. In Luke chapter 9, he goes in and he says, uh, verse 21, But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone. And that's the idea that who he really was, the Messiah, because they wanted him to be a, a civil Messiah, solving their civil needs, political needs. But then he said this in verse 22, saying, The Son of Man, and that's the whole idea of the Son of Man, that he used, that was his popular phrase of himself because it went back to the prophecy in Daniel and the statement of the one who was going to be the king of kings, the dominion over all an everlasting kingdom. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Now just think for a moment. You, you think, I, I just passed the test. I know, I know who Jesus is. He's God. And now he tells you what he's going to do. Oh, oh by the way, I'm going to suffer I'm going to be killed. Now, the good part is I'm going to raise up, but all they can remember are the first two. Wait a minute. God doesn't suffer. God doesn't get killed. And Peter argues with them in Matthew chapter 16. <laughs> in fact, he argues so much, he says, get behind me, Satan. This, what you're doing is demonic. That, that's, this is why I came. I didn't come to be served, but to serve. I came to give my life a ransom for many. And if somehow we don't realize that not only is Jesus God, but he came here to die and to suffer a cruel death. And as the scripture talks about, our sin became upon him and he died in our place. Then we don't really get who Jesus is. Jesus came because he needed to come because we were all lost. We, We come to Jesus not because he's going to make our life a little bit better. And he, does, he makes it immensely better. There is no better life than walking with God. doesn't mean it's going to be easy. But he came because we were going down for the last time. We were drowning for the last time. We were under the judgment of the wrath of God because of our sin. Jesus had to die. Because the Bible says, for the wages of sin is what? Death. All of the sin and come far short of the glory of God. And, and if you don't realize how sinful you and I are in the eyes of God, you're, you're not going to pass the test. Because this is why Jesus came. We were desperately lost. And we were headed for the judgment of God. The horrors of hell. The, the place in which we would be forever from the face of a loving God. And that's why he came. That's what he came to do. In Hebrews 12, it says that he endured the shame for the joy 
of us coming to know him. And you can understand why Peter wanted to reject that message. That, that can't be the message. But that's the message. We're lost and facing a Christless eternity. And everyone we know and care about that doesn't know him, that's what they're facing. Who is Jesus? And what did he come to do? 1 Peter 3.18 says this, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. We're the unjust, he's the just. In order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. That's, that's what the gospel is. We're dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses. We have no hope except for Christ coming for us. Well, that's who Jesus is. That's what Jesus came to do. What, what, what does he want us to do? And the first Corinthians passage I haven't read is, and this is the other part of it. Okay, well, there's many people who die. There's many people were put on a cross. There are many people who've had cruel deaths. What's the, what's the uniqueness? It's, it's the resurrection. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. In fact, in many ways, why do I believe that Christianity is true? Because of the empty tomb. Because of Christ's resurrection. And if you, if you research or study or go after that at all, there, there is no better explanation for that empty tomb other than Jesus raising from the dead, giving evidence for everything he said was true. Well, what are we to do? And, and, and here's the challenge. We, we need to understand that anyone who comes in a relationship with God only comes by grace, which is, is so much better than we deserve. It, it's not something that we work for or attain because of our best efforts. It's taking what he offers to us, and it's a gift from God. It's an invitation from God. It's an invitation from Jesus. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. You're tired of your old life. You want a new life. Come to me, and I'll receive anyone who comes to me. And whoever comes to me, I will not disappoint. But what kind of a step of, is that step of faith? Receiving that which you don't deserve, which I don't deserve. What is that? Is it, as some say, is it simply a nod to God and saying, okay, that's enough, and I, I did that at one point in my life, and now I can just do whatever I want? Does it mean I walked an aisle at a, a big crusade, and since I did that, then that's, that's enough? Did, did I pray a prayer, and that prayer is sufficient? What is it? I, I guess you could say this. It's like, it's like making a marriage commitment. If, if, if you made a marriage commitment and you said, well, you know, I do, and then you live like you were single the rest of your life. You know, it might look on a paper you're married, but you're not married if you say yes, and then you just live your own life like you're single the rest of your life. That wasn't a real commitment, was it? And so what Jesus is really saying, I'm going to summarize it now. He's saying, if, if you're going to come after me, it's, it's going to take all of who you are to receive all that I can give. I'm asking not for some of you. I'm asking for all of you. It is a it is a full commitment. 
Now, we don't understand all the implications of that when we make that commitment. I made that commitment when I was a young person at age nine. But what I did know, I knew was that this is, I'm all in. God doesn't want part of our life. He wants all of our life. And it's not even just receiving what he gives you. You're giving everything you are to him. I want to identify fully and complete with you. And, and so this is what Jesus says, and it's a verse that might be worthy to memorize. He said, and he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, that's pretty all-inclusive, if anyone, right? Would that include all of us here? I think so. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That, that sounds to me like a statement, look, at if you're going to follow me, it's got to be a complete commitment. Are we going to do it perfectly? Are we going to mess up? Of course we are. But it's, it's, it's an all-in choice. He goes on then and says, Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Look, if you're holding on, <laughs> you don't have it. You've got to get rid of that and to get something new. Well, sometimes I look at these phrases, I'm thinking, you know, what... Is there any ways I can put a handle on these? Well, let me just give you a way I try to put a handle on this. Uh, it's, they're all beginning with the letter S. Alliterations are not inspired, but maybe this is helpful for you. It's been helpful for me to kind of think through. What is the commitment I have made? And let me put it this way. I'm still making. The Christian life is always in the present tense. If, if we're only referring back to the past, then something potentially could be very, very wrong. Would you say that about the marriage? The marriage, is, it should always be in the present tense, right? And my wife wants to know I'm still married to her today, right? And tomorrow, I'm still married to her tomorrow. That I, I, I am presently committed to her. Is that right? And every analogy breaks down. You know, you, you can obliterate a marriage, but you, if you can't really obliterate a real relationship with Jesus. But he knows whether it was a superficial one or was it, it was a full, wholehearted commitment. I put this in your outline. A Christian or disciple is one who turns from their sin and, and turns to Jesus as Savior. That's what repentance is. It's turning from the old life and turning to the new life. It's rejecting your sin and saying, I don't want to live that way anymore. I want to live God's way. Some say repentance is the, is the lost word in the gospel. It's trusting, believing in who Jesus is and what he has done. He is King of kings, Lord of lords. He is God, and he is the one who is sufficient for all my sin. And commits to follow Jesus as Lord in daily obedience. What will that look like? We'll deny ourselves, pick up our cross daily, and follow him. What does it mean to deny yourself? You can put it this way. It means to be willing to sacrifice. Christians ought to be known as people who make sacrifices. You could say it a number of different ways. You could use some other S words. It's a person who says, I'm going to try to live a selfless life. It's not all about me. In our home, it's all about Alice. No, no. You know, it's, it, it's, it's, you know, it's not about me, right? It's, it's about others. It's a selfless, self-denial. And some of these are just good checklists. Am I living a life and it's really all about me? Do, am I, is there any part of my life I'm denying self, just the things I want? Where, where am I making sacrifices? And he says, and, and take up his cross daily. Now, you know, we, we have Christian jewelry today, and I have nothing against Christian jewelry. You know, we'll have gold and silver crosses and things like that. We have a cross on the top of our church building. Uh, 
But let's just understand what that symbol means. It means, it means death, doesn't it? You know, it'd be like, you know, I guess putting an electric chair symbol on your, you know, on a chain and put it around your, on your neck. And it can be a symbol. It said, this symbol is a symbol that I'm willing to suffer for, for my walk with Christ. I, I'm willing to... I'm, I'm willing to do whatever God wants me to do, even if it kills me. You know, remember that phrase? You know, I'm going to get this done and this kills me, all right? Well, sometimes there are followers of Christ that for them to go down that path, it's going to kill them. And it's worth it. I, I'm daily willing to die to self and to die for whatever happens because it's worth it. And, and let me just understand, the reason our, that, that more Christians don't die you know, as martyrs for the faith, is because God wants us to be a living sacrifice, right? You, don't, you know, dead sacrifices can only do that once. We are to die daily for him and willing to suffer. What, what does it mean to follow Jesus? To follow is, is to surrender your will to his will. You know, I've said this before. Sometimes uh, I look back in some of the, ch- the children's games are ones that kind of picture things out of you. Li- remember, you know, follow the leader. Remember those games where, you know, someone gets the leader and whatever they do, you're supposed to do it? Well, w- if you play that game, what have you just done with your will? You've surrendered your will to the person who's in, in front of the line, right? Because whatever they say, you're supposed to do. Or if you don't like that, how about, uh, uh, just pop my mind and just pop right out. How about Simon Says, right? You ever play that game? I always like to be Simon, you know, I like to tell people what to do, okay, you know, whatever I, whatever motion I give, you're supposed to repeat that motion, and if you play that game, you have now surrendered your will to Simon, who's, who's ever up in front telling you what to do, right? Well, that's, that's how it is with Jesus. Okay, Jesus, what, what does he want me to do? And, and in case I don't say this, this is the best life possible. I wouldn't give this up for anything, but you have to be convinced that Jesus really is God. And God knows best, and if God knows best, I want to do what's best. And, and, and it's not always going to be easy, but it's going to be awesome, right? But it means I'm, I've got to be willing to sacrifice, suffer, surrender. Interesting little, little trivia here. I hate to say anything Bible, with Bible trivia, but the phrase, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it, that's the most repeated phrase in the, in the Gospels. You've got to lose it to get it. You've got to lose it to get it. You've got to lose it to get it. I never knew that before. Um, but I guess that must be pretty important. It might be on the, the, the rest of the, de- the test, right? What's the most repeated phrase in the Gospels that Jesus said? You got, if you're going to save it, you've got to be willing to lose it. And, and then he says something kind of strange here as far as how do you put in kind of for what a man profit, he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself. That's kind of all the idea. Look at what the world offers is nothing compared to what God offers. So again, if you're going to save it, then you know, give it away. But how about this phrase? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Sometimes being a Christian means that you're, you're going to get some, some ridicule. Essentially, if you look at the, 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 the gospel accounts in John, you'll, you'll find out there were two major reasons why people in Jesus' day didn't follow him. When they, there was really no reason. I mean, how could you not be in the presence of Jesus and say I think I ought to follow him. It's the same reason people don't do it today. Number one is they're afraid what other people would think. They're afraid about being kicked out of the synagogue. They're afraid about the religious leaders would do to them. And so we can't follow him. I, I, look, at, I, gee, look at, look at, look at, I can't, I'm, I'm afraid what other people are going to think. And the other reason was they didn't 
particularly like Jesus being the God that they weren't expecting. I, I, want, I want my God to make my life easier. Your life won't necessarily be easier if you follow Jesus. It'll be better. It'll be awesome, but it won't necessarily be easier. And some people won't make it because they don't want Jesus telling them what to, what? What to do. So Jesus wasn't the God they wanted to have. I want the God who will do the things I want him to do. The genie in the bottle, right? The God in the bottle. What three wishes do you want given today? That's not Jesus. The whole idea of shame, you're going to see this a little bit in your Bible studies this week, but basically uh, in, in Acts chapter 5, it's interesting that the disciples were excited because they were counted worthy to be shamed for his name. But on the other part, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. But it, it's the idea of being willing to take sometimes the emotional grief of following Jesus because it's worth it. So what's the point this morning? The point is, it's pretty important that we get these questions right. Who is Jesus? He's not just one of many religious leaders that have started all kinds of religious activities. He is God become man. And what did he come to do? He came to rule in people's lives and he, and. And he came to save us from our sin. That's what Jesus, that's what his name means. Which means that we are sinners desperately in need of forgiveness. And, and he came that our lives might not just be put on a list saying, okay, I'm, you're going to heaven. But he came to transform our lives, to change it forever. And he leads us here to get that message out to everyone, locally and globally. So I just asked you, did, did, did you pass the test? And, and we, we can fool all kinds of people, but we can't fool God. Now, we're only saved by grace through faith, and it's not ourselves, it's a gift of God, not as old works that no one should boast, but, but it's a commitment. And, and each day we live, we, we really demonstrate, is that commitment being lived out in truth in my life? You don't get half of Jesus. I want Jesus as Savior. I don't want him as a Lord. He's both Savior and Lord. And every day we have the challenge of living that out. But it begins with a full, total commitment of our lives to him. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. I just want all our heads to be bowed right now. If you're not sure that you've made that commitment, I just want to pray for you. I'm not going to ask you to come up, but I, if, if you're not sure that you have settled with Jesus as who he is and what he's done and what he's required of you, would you just raise your hand? If you're not sure that you've made that commitment. This is the most important issue to settle, because eternity is at stake. And everyone that we know and care about, this is what they need to do as well. By God's goodness and grace. Let's pray together. Father, help us to be a people, a collective people, that know who you are and what you've done and what you require of us. Help us in a joyous way each day 
be willing to suffer and surrender and sacrifice and save our lives by giving it away and, and even be willing to be shamed but unashamed of the gospel. Help us to live for you in such a way that people can really see who Jesus is clearly. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.